Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Good morning, Katie. We've lost Mike Hogan to the West Coast. He is in Los Angeles at our summit, which hopefully you've been reading lots of interesting coverage from. I was reading about Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill musical, uh, which I am personally psyched for. So we'll have Mike back soon enough. But we have lots to talk about. Joanna and I have both been uh, enjoying our local film festivals and catching up on things. um, Because if you look around, there are amazing Oscar caliber movies playing all over the country right now. Um, So go travel to your local film festival. We'll also talk about First Man, which is out in theaters this week, as well as Bad Times at the El Royale, which has a great cast, might not be the Oscariest thing, which I'm really intrigued to figure out why. Uh, and then Richard talked to Billy Magnuson, who stars in Netflix's Maniac. And then Richard, I believe he also has two movies out this fall. Uh, he has an anthology series on CBS All Access, so I guess it's kind of like a movie. And then, yeah, The Oath, the Ike Barinholtz, uh, t- Tiffany Haddish comedy. There you go. So we'll hear more about that later on. Um, but anyway, so Joanna, you have been attending or you're currently attending the Mill Valley Film Festival in Northern California. And I recently went to Film Fest 919, which just kicked off in Chapel Hill, North Carolina near me. And we've both gotten to uh, catch up on a lot of movies. So Joanna, what what have you been seeing? I actually don't even know what you've managed to see. Yeah, you know, I, I do my best to squeeze in screenings between, you know, a run in the middle of the day, you're trying to work, we're all trying to do everything. But um, I got to see widows i got to see um today they're screening the favorite and the front runner um yesterday i had to miss boy race which i was really sad about um and then i'm really excited to see uh, if beale street could talk this weekend so um you know not as many as i usually try to get to at this film festival which is an amazing film festival um we've talked about it before on this podcast but basically like the conclusion is uh there are a lot of academy voters up here uh you know in the bay area a lot of like um, screenwriters live up here and a lot of uh, tech people live up here and all that sort of stuff and so not only do they have all these movies but like all the actors and the directors come and you know give little spiels so i've seen a lot of best actor best actress future winners just like right before they were going to win without even having to leave my home but katie well, you I've... left your home just okay. not your your home city my home city <laughs> they didn't come to your house to give you a specific speech which would be great uh emma stone did but everyone else did it um <laughs> but uh katie i've like i've heard that film festivals like this are getting more and more popular, these sort of more regional things and that you've got one right where you are. Yeah, well, I guess I don't have any data to back up that they're getting more and more popular, but the fact that there's a new one right down the street from me is some kind of evidence. So so this festival, Film Fest 919, was started by several film festival veterans and movie industry. It got Claudia Puig, who's been a film critic in Los Angeles for a long time, is one of the co-founders. Um, and basically, they were looking for a place with a lot of, you know, plugged in potential moviegoers and chose uh, my area, the Triangle in North Carolina, even though, to my knowledge, there aren't a ton of Oscar voters, which I find really interesting. So they're kind of reaching out to people who might work at the universities or might, you know, like me, have moved from a larger city and want to see these movies. Um, it's been just really, like, they had they did the opening night film was Roma, which I got to see for a second time on the big screen. It was just really fascinating looking around the room to see who was there, like, who had 
turned out for this movie that uh, everyone knows you'll be able to watch on Netflix in two months, uh, but they wanted the opportunity to see it on the big screen. And the two actresses who star in Roma were there, which is uh, fascinating to me. Like the Netflix publicity team was there. They were on their way to New York for the New York Film Festival premiere like two days later. I think when we talk about the fall festival circuit, you know, we talk about uh, Telluride and Toronto and Venice all kind of clumped together in September, but it continues for months. The Hamptons Film Festival was recently, the Santa Barbara Film Festival comes up eventually. You've got AFI Fest in Los Angeles. Like some of these people just spend months and months and months traveling around the country. And then starting in January, they'll be in New York and LA for Critics Awards process. I mean, it really is this six month event. So you go, you know, to me in this theater in a very nice strip mall in North Carolina and to meet the stars of Roma who, you know, the um, the woman who plays Cleo, kind of the main character, doesn't speak English. So she has an interpreter standing next to her. And just the, the work that goes into it and what a process it is. It's it's kind of amazing to see it not just in Toronto, but kind of up close at a regional film festival that is brand new. But based on the films that they got, you can, you know, hopefully this level of uh, quality of films will continue in the next few years. Uh, next weekend, I'm traveling ver- for a very short trip to the Middleburg Film Festival in Virginia, which is sort of the DC area's premier fall film festival. And then the week after I'm going to the Savannah film festival. And, and, and those are both that are pulling talent. Like I've just, I've gotten like, you know, PR emails about who's coming. And like, I think that regardless of whether there are Academy voters in any of these places, and like, obviously there are um, at Mill Valley, but like probably less so in Virginia or in North Carolina or Georgia, but like, it all kind of just helps the profile of a movie in a way that clearly these, you know, companies, Netflix, whoever else feel very invested in, you know, they are bringing talent and whatever. An interesting thing about these film festivals is that um, <laughs> having, I, <laughs> I briefly dated someone who works for a regional film festival. Uh, and he told me that they, I didn't realize this, that the film festivals pay for the movies. They, there's like a fee. And um, it can be kind of high. And so it's interesting to see, like, which festivals have the money to pay for. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that they're waived sometimes, these fees. But it is just, I don't know, it's just kind of like, a, it adds an interesting kind of ed, like dynamic to the whole sort of idea of these festivals that, like, money is talking in certain ways. And to the economy of award season, which we talk about in terms of FYC ads and kind of the fancy, like, lunches that they'll start throwing in New York and L.A. in the next few months that, you know, even down to these festivals, there's just a lot of money changing hands. The uh, film... The, Award season creates jobs. Maybe we should celebrate it for that. I wanted to talk briefly about Green Book specifically, which I got to see at Film Fest 919. Um, and I really wanted to make sure I saw with an audience because everything from Toronto was just about how audiences ate it up and people were so excited about it. And it does feel like a movie that... Well, I mean, I actually do intend to watch it on a screener because I think all of my my parents and my in-laws and basically everyone in my family would like the movie. Um, but Richard, I think you talking about the audience reaction at Toronto was totally dead on for, you know, my experience with a much smaller crowd, also a Southern crowd who, you know, in the some of the scenes where they're talking about Southern food, it got a lot of really good laughs out of it. I think as a crowd pleaser, it goes so far, but I really, I just wondered about where it's going to land in the season because I think the critical reaction is going to get harsher and harsher as it gets further away from festivals. But the the power it has over audiences is undeniable. And as they plan all these Academy screenings, and you've got Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali, who are really great in the movie, both of them, and they're both really charming in person. It's, a, it's an interesting kind of throwback in award season, I think. It feels like something that could have been out 20 years ago, uh, and it's kind of just as pleasurable as it would have been then. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about it in in the terms of, like, once it's out of the kind of festival haze, like how it's going to fare, you know, because they, the, the, these are very, um, by and large, like, 
You hear stories about people booing at Cannes, but for the most part, these festivals are super supportive of the films. The audiences, you know, are that much more excited to be there. They can really swaddle a movie. And then when it gets out into the cold where, you know, uh, critics have their knives out. Yeah, and I think you're right that that's definitely one of them. But, you know, Katie, I think... Was it this week or last that you, you were engaged in a sort of Twitter conversation about Mahershala Ali and his chances in supporting actor? And there are some people, I think, like Kyle Buchanan of the New York Times, who think that like he could just definitely win uh, yeah. this year. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Like I, I'm sort of ambivalent about it in that like I totally see both sides. Like the argument that like he is basically a lead and 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 so good in the movie that like he could just you know, win and supporting kind of by default, but also that he just won. And there's a first time potential winner in Sam Elliott and Star is Born who, you know, seems to have the kind of clear momentum. So um, does has it been clarified for you at all? Or Yeah, I mean, so Kyle B. Hannon's example for this was Christoph Waltz, who obviously won two supporting actor Oscars within about four years of each other, I think, for Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. But his second win was in this crazy anom- anomaly year where every single supporting actor nominee had won an Oscar before. So whoever won was going to be a, a two-time winner, um, which I think that might have been the first time that's ever happened, or it's at least very rare. And I think Mahershala Ali and Sam Rockwell both in Vice, which we talked about last week, like they could come in with really powerful supporting campaigns. But like you said, Richard, it's really hard to imagine going with that narrative over Sam Elliott, who is so wonderful in Star is Born, which is a huge hit, as you know, we should uh, note an addendum to what we talked about last week. People really went to see A Star is Born. Um, Like, why wouldn't you want to give Sam Elliott that recognition for the first time? And the other thing about Mahershala is I think he's wonderful in Green Book, but it's not the flashy role. Like, he is reserved and he has like a couple of big scenes, but his character is kind of all about keeping himself buttoned up and, uh, you know, letting that charisma kind of sink in slowly. But Viggo Mortensen is playing such a huge character. Uh, And if they wind up running him in lead, like I would be really happy to see him get in there. I was so taken with this performance that Richard, you said after um, Toronto, you know, it was kind of could be such a huge stereotype of this like Bronx Italian guy, but has so much warmth and joy to it, and is, is so captivating in the middle of the movie. Um, so it, it seems like Mahershala Ali could definitely ride the popularity of Green Book. But if you know you're trying to choose between the two of them and like which which performance you want to recognize more, Viggo Mortensen feels like the bigger transformation or the bigger deal. I think. It's interesting because I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Stars Born Backlash, which we um, we sort of hinted at last week. But like, yes, um, I mean, am I allowed to even give it one week to enjoy its great box office news? No, Maybe, no, boo! This is not the era we live in. Um, you know, I mean, like, I think it's going to keep making a ton of money. Um, I think you know it's got long legs, and people are going to continue to enjoy it. But some of the like pre-release rumblings that I have been hearing, I I had crystallized a bit f- like more for me in terms of like what the shape of that backlash is going to take. And I think um, a lot of people have issues with, uh, they feel like the story is a little, is told sort of entirely from the Bradley Cooper character perspective when actually like in previous versions of A Star is Born, it's been from the woman's perspective. Um, you know, there's just like a lot of, a lot of people disliking um a, a relationship that they see as like toxic and codependent and about, uh, you know, a, a addict behavior being packaged, they think as sort of romantic and swoony. And I, I, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with that backlash, but I've been hearing it grow a bit stronger among, uh, you know, younger women that I know, uh, who maybe this year are just not in the mood for, uh, you know, to celebrate Jackson, Maine. Um, and, 
the only thing I'll say, you know, just to link it back to what you were just talking about is that um, the only person that I've seen escape any criticism in this movie is Sam Elliott. So <laughs> I could see if, if the star is born bubble bursts early, like if that happens, I could see Sam Elliott being one of those, like we're giving Sam Elliott the award for the broader, a star is born success. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but like if anyone emerges as sort of like the person to, um, you know, stand in for the larger movie, I think it would be him. I absolutely hear where those criticisms are coming from. And I think that like that they're totally fair. Um, at the same time, I think that if you called the, a star is born something else and framed it as a movie about addiction and, uh, you know, I think that like, then the sort of centering of Bradley Cooper's character makes more sense and, and sort of like maybe gets a pass in a way. Um, because I think it really is. I mean, this is a, this is a movie about addiction made by someone in recovery who's Bradley Cooper has been very public about the, his sobriety and um, struggles with, uh, you know, alcohol before, you know, before he got sober, I think at like 30. So he's been sober for, you know, over, over 10 years now. Um, I, I think that that, that, that sort of adds an interesting dimension to it. Um, you know, and then like anecdotally, I was at a wedding this weekend, friend of the podcast, Bobby Finger got married upstate in New York. And um, there was an impromptu sing-along to The Shallow. And the movie had come out two days prior and everyone knew the lyrics. I mean, you were at Bobby Finger's wedding. I, though, like. I mean, yeah, like granted, it was a it was a certain kind of crowd. But like then I was at home in Brooklyn uh, two nights ago and just with the, my windows open in the living room. And I heard a woman just like full voice singing that song as she walked down the street. Wow. Like, I feel like, and, and it made f- over $40 million way past box office expectations. So, uh, you know, obviously the, I hear the criticisms and I think that we should keep having those discussions. But like, I do think also that the movie seems to have seized a hold of some portion of the sort of cultural dialogue at the moment. Uh, and that can go a long way to solidifying a movie's Oscar chances. I think you're right, Joanna, that, J- that Sam Elliott could be the representational win. But I also think that Lady Gaga winning for best song could be that. I, yeah, that that seems like it's definitely going to happen. I, I should have said that too. Yeah, of course. Sam Elliott and then also The Shallows. <laughs> Those are the two like unimpeachable stars of A Star is Born. So. I want to say one quick thing about uh, additional thing about Film Fest 919 before we get into, you know, things that are out in theaters now, which is that I met two Little Gold Men listeners uh, who, you know, like met me or recognized my voice or something, which just, just does not happen. I know it has happened to all of us at various points and every Little Gold Men fan I've ever met has been extremely nice, but I was just so pleased and happy to hear from people who were at the Film Festival because I had tweeted about it. So that's another thing. Support your local film festival so other people know about it. I feel like a lot of people don't know these things are happening right down the street from them. Doesn't count that Charlie was one of them. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Like, he, he enjoyed Roma, though. Who, who knew that two-year-olds yeah. were the prime He's audience. a very sophisticated toddler. <laughs> can we, can we uh, in honor of Lady Gaga, call our fans Little Gold Monsters for the fourth <laughs> season? Um, yes. Now we have to do that. I'm, af- I'm so afraid of the little monsters, though. Like, what if they, what if they come after us? <laughs> I know a few uh, little monsters who are also little gold men listeners, actually. So at ah. least those people can be little gold monsters. Um, there might be a little monster who's a co-host on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> are you the one who ruined the Stars Born's uh, audience award chances at Toronto, Richard? Did you? You know uh, me, baby. 
the other thing I wanted to say about A Star is Born that I think leads into maybe the next thing to talk about is that it feels like it needs a competitor. Like, if it's going to emerge as the frontrunner this early on, it needs – it can't be the frontrunner forever. I think that's a really hard position to maintain for God knows six months. Um, and I kind of have a hard time figuring out what its competitor would be. But one of the possible contenders, I think, is First Man, which is opening in theaters this weekend. It's a, such a vastly different movie from A Star is Born that it does feel weird to compare them. Um, I'm a big fan of First Man. I think we talked about it after Toronto. Um, I mean, Richard, to you, does it feel at all like a possible competitor to Star is Born? Well, it's interesting because both of those movies started they were they they were birthed in much the same way they both premiered at venice and they both got rave reviews and they're both studio movies star is born is warner brothers right and and first man's universal yeah um so they have like similar profiles in a way um but they're about vastly different things obviously i was a little bit i I think that like first man after its kind of raves at venice i think it played mm, like okay at telluride in toronto I don't, I don't think it like blew anyone's socks off. And I think that, you know, they certainly at Toronto, I mean, Telluride did not have the facilities for this, but you know, Toronto, they were busing people up to a big IMAX theater and to, to see it. And, and I think it's, it, it, it didn't quite seem to connect, but then in the week since they've been doing a lot of screenings in New York and it's just anecdotally talking to people who've been to that or seeing it in tweets or whatever. And these IMAX screenings are getting these rapturous responses I I think it I think it's definitely a contender. I I I, I wonder though if it's maybe a little bit too uh, on the emotional side of things a little too cold. Yeah, and I think that's been a pretty frequent criticism that's come up uh, since its festival run, which is because, like, for me, I was, like, so emotionally engaged by it that I don't, I kind of don't know what people are talking about, although I obviously understand some of where they're coming from. Joanne, have you seen First Man? I have not, but it's so funny because I was sitting here while you were like, well, Star Wars can't be the front runner forever. What's the other movie? And I was like, yeah, what is the moonlight to its La La Land? And then you're like, First Man. I was like, oh, <laughs> Damien Chazelle. We can Damien talk about Chazelle. Bill Street, too, if we want to really go into that parallel all over Back again. in the mix <laughs> i was talking to uh, david sims who at this point we should like make an unofficial co-host because i feel like we quote him every week um hi david um who was pointing out that space movies do really well in the fall with dads or at least you know kind of broadly speaking with dads you've got things like gravity you've got the martian interstellar kind of like all really different kinds of movies about outer space none of them historical in this way um hidden figures is another example that that's a really different kind of movie it's not first man is definitely not that level of crowd pleaser um but it does seem possible that this movie is going to do really well. I think it doesn't have the kind of like vocal Twitter fan base that A Star is Born did, but I can see it kind of playing and playing and playing forever. Like I would definitely tell my dad to go see it. I mean, I think you're right that that it could do well first weekend, but is that a word of mouth movie? I mean, it's a lot of it is depressing and about grief. As someone joked to me, someone tweeted, texted me after seeing the movie in IMAX. Uh, he was like, I'm so glad I've now seen a child's funeral in IMAX. Spoiler alert for history. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's interesting because I was trying to think. I'm like, well, you know. Hidden Figures is kind of like the the most recent space movie that I can think of that, but that's not real. That's like a math and social justice movie, really. Um, and who doesn't love math? Everyone's and social favorite justice? combo. Yes. <laughs> 
But, um, you know, gravity is about grief, essentially. Interstellar is about grief. I think what gravity especially had going for it was these, like, dazzling dazzling visuals, which you guys mentioned is sort of part of what makes First Man so compelling. So, I don't know. We'll, We'll... We'll see. Katie, I'm curious. You um, Speaking of things, movies that might be a little too cold to connect with people, I know the first time you saw Roma, you kind of had a, trouble kind of engaging with it on that level. Did the second viewing change that for you at all? Because that's another f- potential front runner that, you know, we should be considering. Yeah. And I wanted to I wanted to bring up Roma 2 as another thing that everyone insists you have to see on the big screen, which is what I did at Film Fest 919. I was really glad I got the chance to see it again. Um, I do still find it colder than a lot of people do with one huge exception in the middle of the movie that if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about that like, you know, is the most upsetting thing I've ever seen, <laughs> probably. But I think the technical achievement of it was even clearer to me on a second viewing, which again, speaking of gravity, like that's become Alfonso Caron's whole thing. Like you really do need to see it on a big screen to kind of appreciate what he's doing. But I think there's something about the way that he worked with the actors where he didn't really give them a script. They were basically improvising their way through the scenes, which I think makes it feel really authentic and like a slice of life, which is what people have been praising it for, but also makes the characters feel more distant for me than I wanted them to. Uh, Particularly this main character of uh, Cleo, who's played by uh, this woman whose name don't even want to try to pronounce uh, Yalitia, I believe is her first name, who had never acted before. Um, I think it just becomes hard to frame a movie around someone who is being specifically instructed not to really act for the camera. And he is creating these incredible set pieces with these long camera shots. And I can't fathom how much money they spent on this thing. Um, But the characters feel like kind of part of that scene setting more than people who are getting the story with you. Um, So that when we get to the end to these, like, what are these emotional climaxes, I kind of feel more like an observer of something impressive than about something that I felt really swept away by. Um, And I was glad I got to see it again to kind of solidify my feelings about that. And I have no ill will toward Roma. It's this black and white Spanish language movie about, you know, everyday Mexican people. Like it's something that everyone should see because you haven't seen anything like it before. But, you know, for all that everyone says first man is cold and it might be like more traditional Hollywood, you know, grabby filmmaking. Like that was the one that got an emotional reaction out of me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of First Man. I think that if if anything, that movie does the weird work of making me think that the moon mission was a complete waste of life and money. Um, but like, why the fuck did we do that? Like, who cares? But um, but like, I think that uh, what's interesting about it is that like that it's la- I'm not gonna spoil anything, but like when they get to the moon, what and burn the flag, right? <laughs> that, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry Marianne. <laughs> That moment, that that whole sequence is beautiful and moving. So the movie gets there emotionally at the end. Um, and, and maybe Roma doesn't for some people. But I feel like in recent history, with Quran's win for Gravity and Ang Lee's win for Life of Pi, that emotional connection maybe isn't necessary for someone to win Best Director. Yes. And so yeah. maybe that's where we really should be talking about Roma I think it'll get nominated for Best Picture and that will be a feather in Netflix's cap and like they'll finally have broken through that barrier. But uh, finally, they've been at it for like four years, but still, you know, they'll have broken through that and 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 maybe the Best Picture is a different conversation and I feel like it's maybe not even First Man. I feel like it could be Green Book. Which is also released by Universal, same studio as First Man, which is an interesting conundrum they have. Yeah, they'll have to make that choice and I feel like Fox Searchlight had that last year with billboard three billboards and shape of water you know so i don't know it'll be it's going to be an interesting season with all these kind of studios in play and again it's early days but like it's not that early it's mid-october and i don't 
feel like we have a true front runner. I think this, a star is born is poking its head up right now because it's out and people are loving it. But like, like you said, Katie, it's many months to go. Yeah, I guess I have to drop the requisite, like, let's not forget that Disney is coalescing its considerable power behind Black Panther. Yes, no, you definitely should. And knowing that they they hired like new award season consultants this year, knowing that they're trying like, they really feel like they have a shot here. They did not want the popular Oscar category because they wanted the, you know, the top prize. So, um, you know, that's it's something that that we aren't talking a lot about because it's not in these like award season circuit uh, festival things right now, but you know, nor was get out. So we'll see. No, it, it is interesting, Joanna, that like it, it, we are now at the time of year, um, where like people who are not sort of right in this center of things might not notice, but like, we're now starting to see like what, like who's throwing their chips in. They just scheduled a ton of screenings of eighth grade that are happening of free screenings at schools but like some other things here and there. So like clearly like that's a 24 being like, yep, we're in, which is really interesting because they still have hereditary, which we talked about so much over the summer before eighth grade came out. Um, And I wouldn't think they're giving up on Tony Collette, but that is a really interesting strategy from them. It's so interesting because, you know, maybe they're, they're seeing this as like, you know, moonlight and then lady bird as these like intensely personal, even though Bo Burnham is not uh, an, an eighth grade girl, though he, uh, though he has said he has a sense of humor of one, but um this sort of like very personal, very small hit the poignancy radar with people. And I don't, I don't think like maybe they're not angling for a win, but just the nomination. Um, and it's so funny because I had a friend the other day be like, oh, I'm, I'm like really hardcore rooting for eighth grade to be like in writing and directing. And I was like, God, I just feel like that's not a movie people are talking about the same way they talked about Lady Bird and Moonlight. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, it's not. I don't think it's been quite as rapturous as Lady Bird because partly you know, it doesn't have anyone f- famous in it. Um, you know, no offense, Josh Hamilton. And it's, it's really difficult. I mean, it like approaches like Todd Solon's territory of awkward at, at points. And um, I think it's likely to be recognized in screenplay if anywhere. But that would be a great victory for that movie. I mean, the same, like we said the same thing about Lady Bird, like the fact that it got the best director and best picture nomination was a huge victory for that movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and I think also like not for nothing, um, I'm biased because my sister works for them, but like eighth grade's going to do really well at the Independent Spirit Awards, you know, like it'll it'll have its moments. You know, I feel like that's where Elsie Fisher comes in. I also think I wrote a piece for the magazine for the December issue, uh, so it won't be out for a while, but I just sent it in so it's fresh in my head about the Golden Globe musical comedy category and I heard yesterday that Star is Born is running in drama for that and yeah. so like that was another that Kyle leaves, Buchanan, Buchanan Twitter thread yeah <laughs> I mean, he's just on. like the real spoiler know it all isn't he but um but like that Elsie Fisher could get into that you know for, for comedy actress uh if they're going to count eighth grade as a comedy which I think they will so you know it's just always interesting watching that movie's c- campaign because it came out a little while ago, churn into motion. And I think, Joanna, back to your point, like, yeah, we're going to start hearing from Black Panther, I think, a lot pretty soon. Yeah. And Black Klansman, uh, speaking of movies with half the same title, because um, you, you, we were talking about this a few weeks ago, I think, where they were bringing Spike Lee back around for screenings. And it's it's kind of making the rounds. And it was a it was a solid summer hit, like not Black Panther level, obviously. But that's another movie from earlier in the year that I think we're going to be seeing over and over again. Well, it's interesting, like sort of one last hit on midnight. Uh, sorry, eighth grade is what I was going to say is that no, is that, you know, the the closer, you know, Lady Bird analog this year was Jonah Hill's mid 90s. But, you know, Richard and I both saw it at film festivals. Uh, it didn't really hit 
it with the audience at my film festival. And uh, so I wonder if A24 is just sort of like, okay, let's pivot to Bo Burnham in eighth grade, which did, you know, was a, was a hit with audiences this summer. Yeah. The New York film festival um, announced mid nineties as their secret screening. Cause they sometimes do that. They had, I think like Les Mis was a secret screening. Lincoln um, was my favorite one. Lincoln. And then when they announced mid nineties, I was like, Ugh. like, but I mean, that, cause I hate that movie, but, but I mean, maybe that indicates some, you know, institutional support on a 24s part behind that movie, or maybe it was kind of a last ditch effort. But, um, I think that if I'm looking at, at, at the table, I'm going to pick eighth grade for X, Y, Z categories, and then maybe throw some money to Tony Collette for hereditary. I also have to say, like, you know, we, we obviously, if you're crafting a campaign, you have to take more than just the quality of the movie into consideration. And having seen Bo Burnham give endless talks about his movie and having seen Jonah Hill talk about his movie, like, one of those guys is much better at that than the other. And so, you know, like, I would love to see Bo Burnham on the award circuit. He is, like, a very entertaining person and, and very, very thoughtful, I think. So, you know, and, and like, you know, Oscar-nominated YouTube star, like, he and Trace Vaughn could like you know this could be the year of youtube stars at the oscars or something oh lord richard you're gonna have to write that think piece for uh some other upcoming issue okay so let's get away from award season for a minute i think i have not seen bad times at the el royale it's out this weekend along with first man my understanding of it is is far more of a fun genre audience play than an oscar play even though it has jeff bridges and cynthia Revo and dakota johnson and chris hemsworth and lots and lots of actors that we love um i still really want to see this movie i feel like i could use a fun genre exercise at this point in the year and drew goddard is a director who uh, i've been a fan of since cabin of the woods he wrote the screenplay for the martian was oscar nominated for it so there's your oscar connection um but you guys have both seen it, I believe. Um, tell me what I'm going to get out of this. Uh, the, the, a podcast that I listen to is, keeps advertising it and says it's a trip into hell, uh, which <laughs> it seems more fun than that. Oscar wise, it's definitely pretty much the front runner for like best open shirt. Because uh, yes. Chris Hemsworth sort of has an unbuttoned shirt for most of the movie. I mean, he's he's the perennial winner in that category. Best hip bones, Chris Hemsworth. Oh God, <laughs> yeah. I someone someone at Esquire, Tyler Coates, uh, just wrote something about how basic he feels for being attracted to Chris Hemsworth, and I was like, yep, <laughs> like blonde surfer hunk. You know, correct me if I'm wrong or or, or if you disagree, Richard. But I feel like um, I love Drew Goddard as well. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to out bonafide Katie and say like since his Buffy the Vampire Slayer days. No, like Drew Goddard is one of these like genre gods because you know he worked on uh, Lost, he worked on Buffy, he worked on you know Angel. He was kind of the secret sauce, uh, I think, behind the success of Daredevil season one on on Netflix before he left that project. And he's been attached to all these franchise stuff. For years, um, you know, like Sony wanted him to take like to helm like sort of some of the Spider Verse stuff, or he was going to do. Wasn't he, he on Venom at one point? He's still allegedly going to do an X Men project for Fox, but I don't know what's going on with the X Men franchise. So, like, obviously the Cloverfield franchise, like you know, he wrote the first Cloverfield, and so he's got a forever producer credit on that. Like, uh, and he directed the the <laughs> the pilot of the Good Place, and so like you know all all this sort of like weird, interesting, and especially like interest in afterlife and purgatory, which both Lost and The Good Place are kind of about, is something that um, Drew Goddard has been long fascinated with. And and so this is like definitely a sort of purgatorial uh, story. So, you know, trip to hell, I would say trip to purgatory. But um, <laughs> that might be actually what they said in the ad. <laughs> Don't let me misquote them. Not as catchy. But I... 
for for me, um, I'm I'm happy to see him do something that's based on original property. He told me, you know, I've got a piece that's going up on VF.com. He told me he wrote this uh, like the day after the election, three days after the election, something like that. Uh, so this is like him pro- digesting the Trump presidency through this film. Um, and that's not something that's necessarily immediately, immediately apparent, but like, you know, once you start to think about it, it's sort of in there, but you know, what's, what's true, I think, uh, you know, from my perspective is that bad times could stand to be shorter than it is. It's over two hours and there's just like, there's a lot of good performances in there. There's a lot of really good fun stuff in there, but it's got some drag in it that I wish, um, had been sliced out. Richard, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I have a review up on the site now um, that, unfortunately, it's a negative review. I, I I, think that there's so much great stuff in the kind of DNA of the movie. Like, I, I love Cabin in the Woods. I love Drew Goddard's work uh, on Buffy and, and various other places. And um, I love the cast of the movie so much. Um, and I like the Agatha Christie setup. You know, I think that that all, you know, is great. And I think that, unfortunately... Maybe I didn't know that about the Trump thing. Like maybe that sort of serious minded stuff. I think it kind of sinks the movie. I wanted the movie to be kind of nasty fun and like have everyone be bad and like, you know, sort of not antiheroes, but just sort of like, you know, people, villains kind of conspiring against each other kind of thing. But like the movie actually has this real sort of moral and religious weight to it that like is really un like uh, surprising and sort of like not really earned. Um, so yeah, I was disappointed. I mean, it, and it's crazy to say that about a movie that has a shirtless Chris Hemsworth and B Cynthia Erivo singing like beautifully several times. Many songs. This didn't premiere at Fantastic Fest. It premiered in LA, but it like had a very early screening of Fantastic Fest, which was, you know, packed with Drew Goddard acolytes. And I talked to a bunch of these guys who I know are huge Drew Goddard fanboys after the movie. And they were all kind of like, uh, and I was like, Oh no, if it's not playing with these guys, who's it going to play with, you know? And so like, uh, you know, I, I think though everyone agrees that there are two huge standouts in this movie, three, if you count uh, Chris Hemsworth torso, and that is Cynthia Erivo, uh, who between this and widows is just having like the greatest introduction, I think to film of all time. She's, she's great. She's got these great, like not only is she great throughout, not only is it great to hear her singing, she did all that singing live on set and it's amazing. Um, in fact, your daughter told me he had to like tell her to mess up more so that people would believe that it was actual live singing. Cause she was too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because otherwise she's too famous to be in this rundown hotel, presumably. <laughs> right. Well, he was like, no one will believe we didn't monkey with it afterwards unless you like have some like mess ups in it. And then, you know, she's got some great moments that like, I don't know, I I saw this, I think, like the day or two after the first Brett Kavanaugh hearing and it felt like a very like... You know, she basically sort of like, as this woman of color telling this like white man to just sort of like, I'm bored with your messaging. It was a very good moment in that, in a, in a sort of messy film. But the other standout, I think, is Lewis Pullman, who plays, uh, this bellboy character or, you know, hotel manager character. Um, he's Bill Pullman's son, which I didn't know until after I saw the movie. Wait, what? Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> 
You can see what? it once once you look at look for it. You can see it. Um, he's in a role that was originally offered to Tom Holland, uh, and you could tell that right away. Oh my god! Yeah, I've only seen the trailer, but like that, I definitely thought it was Tom Holland on first. Yeah, time. they're like a to- a real Tom Holland type, Lewis Pullman. <laughs> um, but he's gr- I think he's tremendously great throughout the film. He plays like kind of Craven, but he's got a big moment that's good and stuff like that. And I just I th- I found him very captivating. Yeah, um, no, he's good. Yeah, you know, Cabin in the Woods is sort of famous in its own right for uh, being the first, like, the a film debut for Chris Hemsworth, at least stateside, sort of, like, in a biggish role. Like, they took a gamble on an unknown Chris Hemsworth. And I feel like Bad Times might wind up being, um, you know, along with Widows, like, an introduction for Cynthia Revo and Lewis Pullman, both of whom I could see having, like, uh, huge, great long careers. So, hopefully. Yeah, Joanna, so you saw Widows uh, recently. Just like I feel like the one thing that is bad with Widows is that Cynthia Revo doesn't sing. So it does feel like a really important uh, double feature for her. But I'm curious. So, K- Katie, we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, awards movies, and, and this is probably not one. Uh, you are someone who, uh, you know, has a kid and has like other responsibilities. Is this the kind of thing that would get you out of the house? I was literally just sitting here thinking, like, I feel like I would enjoy, like, going to see this on a Thursday night by myself. Like, I mean, the the standard of, like, will you hire a babysitter and, like, go out is exceptionally high for me. So it's, like, the kind of thing that I would probably try to go see on my own. Um, but I, I see what you mean, because this time of year, it feels like so many things, like, well, you gotta see First Man, you gotta see Star is Born, you gotta go see... Can you ever forgive me? And when something is kind of fun, uh, you wonder if like if it's going to get you out. But like, you know, this is a country where Venom just made $80 million. Like most people do not have that, <laughs> that problem in their head. Um, so I do really I do really want to see it because it does seem like it's something that you sink into. Like you want to get the mood of being in this hotel and like where everyone's kind of bad and you have like time to pay attention to everybody. And obviously every movie like deserves your full attention. But I, I do I do want to make the effort to see it, even though I have to spend the next two weekends at weddings. So I don't know when. And I will get to do it. Sorry, Drew Goddard. I promise to support you. The, I mean, the last thing I want to say about like the stakes of this movie, as far as I'm concerned, is like this is Fox taking a gamble on like you know. You, I don't think you see movies like this made much anymore. I mean, that's not that's a no dust statement, but like this is a this is an original property from a filmmaker that yes has a following, but he's not like exactly Christopher Nolan level. You know what I mean? Like, and so this is not a franchise film, but it has like a, a like a higher budget than you know, your sort of micro budget indie or something like that. And it's, um, you know, it's got like, I don't know. I, I just appreciate that Fox took the gamble on this and I, I hate to see that gamble not pay off and that, you know, and I, and I love that Drew Goddard is doing this instead of like another Spider-Man movie or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is the kind of like, orig- why aren't, why isn't anyone doing original content anymore? And I'm like, here it is. Well, the lore around this movie is that it only exists because when Goddard was signing on to do whatever vague superhero X Men thing, this was part of the deal. Oh, he he's like, I'll, I'll do whatever. I'll do your X Force if you let me do. If you let me do this, bad times. yeah. So I'm really curious to see how it plays financially for them because I don't feel like the movie at the moment has like a terribly high profile in terms of like people aware that it's coming out. Um, but that said, like, even though I didn't ultimately like the movie, um, I it makes me immensely curious to see what he does next as a director. I think he's very talented. Um, I think this the script just kind of got away from him. But, um, you know, and it's again, it, like you both said, like, it's just refreshing to see something new that's being, you know, given a sort of studio polish. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not rooting against the movie by any means, but like, I, I guess I've, I reluctantly filed a bad review because I just was like, Ugh, you know, I was disappointed. I know. But. This, this happens all the time with like, yeah, filmmakers. It's not even like, it's not like you, you know, Katie, Katie has some kind of actual relationship with Drew Goddard. It's not like you and I are best, best friends with Drew Goddard. Not that you're like, you know, whatever. Anyway, point being like, there are some filmmakers that I like so much that when I don't, it, and it's not like because we hung out, it's just like I like them so much and I'm rooting so hard for them that when they make a movie, like uh, Looper, which is a Ryan Johnson film that I just does not work for me. And it like hurts me every time that I think about that because I just want like nothing but unfettered praise for that person because I think he's so great. Well, we should say that Drew Goddard came in for an interview in person on the show uh, three years ago when The Martian was out and it was him and Ridley Scott uh, in this tiny studio with us. And Richard, I think it was just such a surreal experience to be in a room with Ridley Scott that was like, oh, you're a normal person. Drew Goddard, we can talk to you. You're you're like us. Oh, you're yeah. not Ridley Scott. He was so friendly. I and know. then like later that day, I went to uh one of those Peggy Siegel, or no, it wasn't Peggy Siegel's. It was some brunch for like Oscar nominees or something. And I ran into Drew again and he was super nice and introduced me to Matt Damon. And like, you know, like it, like he's he's a he's a sweet guy and a really talented guy. And this is not this movie not being like everything I hoped it would be is by no means it being like, Oh, he's like, he's a, a burnout. Like it didn't actually play out with him. Like, no, no, this is just like a weird little hiccup that still has promise to it. Um, you know, and anyone smart enough to like cast the people he cast, like, Oh yeah. He knows what he's doing. Dakota Johnson. I actually really, you know, her, her role is smaller in this than you might think it would, would be, but like, I actually, I really love her in this. And I saw this just a couple days after Suspiria and I just continue to be so impressed by everything Dakota Johnson does. And, um, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, you know, like her, 50 shades is her twilight and she's, this is her, the Kristen Stewart era of her career, but she was doing really good stuff during 50 shades too, like a bigger splash. And so like, yeah. that. So like, you know, Dakota Johnson uh, as like an enduring, really, really, uh, interesting performer, uh, is something that I'm excited to see. Isn't Luca Guadagnino out there saying he wants her to play Army Hammer's wife in the Call Me By Your Name sequel he keeps swearing is going to happen? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was just this week he was talking about that. Oh, because um, there's a New Yorker profile uh, ah. written by Nate Heller. Yeah. And uh, then obviously Guadagnino. he'll also cast Tilda as something and then it will just be like the Luca gang back together again. So. Well, no, Tilda's going to play grown-up Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> she just needs uh, to dye her black and curl it and then she's got this. So. I, be- I would believe it in a heartbeat. <laughs> she doesn't have to die or cut anything she just she just closes her eyes very intently <laughs> and her hair just grows anew suspiria is a documentary joanna oh. <laughs> this year i'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to butcher box butcher box is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most each month they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. 
So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com cadence. That's butcherbox.com cadence. So Richard, we're going to listen to your interview with Billy Magnuson, who came into the studio. Uh, I imagine he is incredibly magnetic in person because he's been incredibly magnetic in everything I've ever seen him in. He's magnetic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, he really he has like it's funny. Our our producer Danielle and I were were kind of remarking after he he left the the room. He really does have this like energy to him that is a little bit uh, sort of. I didn't really know how to like interact with it because he's just like it's just he's sort of vibrating. Um, but so it was an interesting conversation. But uh, he certainly channels that energy really well into a variety of roles on screen, um, both in television and film this year. Um, So it was fun to kind of just like check in with him and discuss uh, his outlook on, on, on the profession and, and, uh, and how he chooses roles and stuff. So yeah, he's an interesting kind of up and comer. Well, let's listen to your conversation with Billy. Well, I'm really excited to be here in studio with Billy Magnuson. Hey, dude. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having Um, me. I was just perusing. I mean, you're here to talk about three things that are coming out or are out within the span of just like a a month or two. So crazy. Very fortunate. And you had game night earlier this year. Um, How are you so busy? Like, what? How do how do you have time to do all that? There is no there. Actually, I'm going to take a second and say there's always enough time. You make the time and you don't have to stress yourself out. Uh, I think making things priority or giving yourself the freedom to have space. I found that very important. Actually, one of the biggest things I learned in college, because I got in trouble a lot in college, um, by my dean, he pulled me into a room and just said, time management is one of the most important things in this industry. What's a what's priority? You, you have to prioritize. Pri- can't speak, man. No, you got me nervous. Look into your beautiful eyes and I get nervous. Uh, yeah, just prioritizing time. Jeez, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, because you've had a really interesting uh, trajectory um, from theater to film and television. It's been you've been doing a lot in different media. Yes. Um, Are you finding like now that you're a little bit more established, are you finding you're trending towards one over the others or like? No, no. I think, again, acting is acting no matter what form you're in, stage, film, television, uh, Internet, I guess, video games now, too. It's expanding into such a crazy realm or these crazy realms um i think you always approach any project with the same way you find the story what's the story you're telling where's your character live with inside the story and then you try to paint as beautiful a picture as you can you became on people's radar who follow theater anyway really with vanya sonia masha and spike yes uh which you were nominated for tony for crazy which was awesome crazy opportunity um, and in that like you know, you're playing the kind of like hunky, dopey guy, but like there's more to it than that. <laughs> yeah. Was there any fear after that that you would be like typecast? Because I think what's something that's really interesting about your career is that you've done all these different surprising things. Oh, thanks. Have you had thanks. to like manage that? Like, yeah. Again, I like where I am in my career and have been actually since point one is the power or the control I have is I, I can't choose like what job I'm getting. I, I, I'm not getting offers to be like, when I, and I could choose whichever one, but I can choose what I want to pursue. 
Does yeah. that make sense? Mm-hmm. Where I have the option of saying, you know, here's an audition out here. I want to go for that and fight for that role in a sense. But I, I think that's where my power comes. I don't want to waste my time with something that I've done over and over again. And just trying to, you know, play. It's We're just playing. Yeah. So yeah. It's, uh, it's finding the enjoyment and coloring a different space of myself. Or And then this really incredible opportunity came about with Into the Woods where yeah. was Jill Hall dropped out and you came in. And, I guess. I, yeah, that's the story that's I read somewhere. Told me anyway. <laughs> yeah, same here. Same here. Yeah. No, I don't um, think anyone said that to me, but uh, yeah, Wikipedia. What I, I really thought was, was fun about that was that um, it felt like it was almost tweaking the the role from, from Spike. You know, like it was kind of like a, a sort of similar sort of himbo guy but with like kind of arch irony to it was that something you were sort of deliberately no uh you know again i was so nervous uh, again you, know, you enter a room you got uh you know a, a rob marshall meryl streep you got uh tony emily blunt chris pine anna kendrick and i'm just like wait why am i in this yeah. damn room this doesn't seem right so a little bit it was just having fun with it and just you know facing my own fears i guess you could say and say like i've worked for these mo this moment so step up and have a good time and enjoy it. Particularly with, uh, I want to say, the other prince, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, not Prince Charming. I just thought, again, that story of just being a hero. And you don't have to be perfect to be someone else's hero. You know, you're, Prince Charming, you could be wrong. Like, not perfect. Or you could be a little off. But you could be perfect for someone else. You yeah. know? And I, I think that's what I wanted to tell. With yeah. that story, how does this? Um, you've also worked with Spielberg and all these incredible yeah, directors, crazy. and like, is there a point where you think that like imposter syndrome or wherever goes away, or like? Oh no, I, I actually with a maniac. I just did Gabriel Burns played my father in it. I remember you know meeting Gabriel Burns. I'm like such a fan of him for a long time, and one of the first interactions I had with him, he talked about being nervous, and he was nervous there. Because it's the first day of school, you're meeting everyone. I don't think that uh, nerve disappears, especially because you're working to put your best foot forward. You want to be good, and you do. You naturally have these butterflies and this like um, nervous energy because you want to be what's right for the project. And you are also, as an artist, exploring. You're like, I'm going to take these risks and try to put this character together and see where it, it lands. Yeah. So yes, I'm always nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and and with with Maniac, which I, I really thought was spectacular. I mean, it's such Great, a, a unique vision of of both you know science, but also emotion and stuff like that. And I'm curious, like what it was like to make that show because it's very technically complicated, and the yeah. story is really you're playing sort of two different characters or versions of the same character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How is that to manage with, like from the day to day? Did you really know where you were and when you were at any given day? Or? Um, yes and no. Like that was the the challenge of this thing. You know, you're you're stepping into play like three different characters in one day, and you're where's your headspace? What story are you telling? Luckily, working with Carrie Fukunawa and uh, Patrick Somerville, the way they operated, like many I, the, the great artists I admire and enjoy working with are the ones that are collaborative and the best idea wins. So it was a discussion. It wasn't like, do this, do this, get this done. It was what lives in Maniac's world? What are we trying to do? Where does it feel right? Yes, it's it's tough to navigate multiple characters in one day, especially you just live, it lives, for me, I, I uh, my body is a very big part of when I create a character and where it lives in my body changes. So to move it, it yeah, it, it's a challenging thing, but also so exciting. Like things 
that I enjoy with f- film or creating a character, I like to see a turn. I always want to say, okay, we're going this way. Oh, wait, we turned. Why did it turn? It jumped from left to right really fast. And that that excites me. Because if you play like one note in jazz, it kind of gets boring. It could be the best but one note. Yeah. But jazz is all about the movement, the change, and the flow of it all. It sounds like you're 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 pretty reactive to the environment that you're in, just yeah. the story you're telling. And given how busy you've been, is that sort of hard to shake? Is it hard to jump from a sort of you know, full body experience in one thing to another thing or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, it is. Um, I'm finding it more and more uh, challenging. And I, for a while I did this thing after every project I worked on. And like I'm a young, I, in my 20s, I would get, get a job or something, which I was so lucky. I would then take probably like a week to two weeks and travel so I can clear my slate, clear being recognized by anything of the world around me so I could refresh and be like, who's Billy again? I forgot who he was because you do. It's like, I'm not method. I'm not any of that. But you do live in these head spaces and you're constantly thinking that way and you have to like refresh it. So jumping from one project to another, yes, becomes very difficult because you want to clean the palate before you try another sip of a different wine. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely also have spoken to actors or even just observed it from afar who like played some iconic character and they can never quite shake it. So I'm sure it's like a fully intense kind of thing. And and like you said, you bring up Spike and like there is a guttural reaction. Every time you say Spike, I know where he is. Mm -hmm. I know where he lives. And yes, it's, it's, it's a part of me. It's there. Uh, And especially it's such a big part of my career and my, my life. Um, yeah, it's there. And uh, and now you're doing also the CBS, it's kind of an anthology series, Tell Me a Story. Yes. Like with Maniac, where, you know, it's one season, you're in, you're out. Mm-hmm. Does it appeal to you at all to, like, do sit down with a character for five seasons or something like that? Is that a job you would, like, or, or do you prefer this kind of more peripatetic, like, moving um, around? The, the, uh, again, I think with a story... You want a beginning, middle, and end. And I get nervous with not seeing the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can't, how can you create a body of art? Because it's like create a character if you don't know where he actually lives and where it's going or where it's alive. I think my, my lack of a better word, ADHD, ADD kicks in and five years at one thing would drive me crazy. Yeah. I think. Uh, do I say I won't do it? No. But yeah, I, there's never been. I, I've constantly pursued projects that were limited. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Because I think I would go crazy if I had to stay in headspace yeah. for that long. As an audience member, it's been fun because I'm like, oh, Billy Magnuson's in this. You know, and it's like, you know, <laughs> you'll pop up unexpectedly somewhere, you know. <laughs> do you really do? That's so sweet. And it's great. Oh, um, okay. And, you know, I think, you know, going back to, to Game Night earlier this year, which was such a, a fun, like, kind of sleeper hit, you know, yeah. people really liked it. We were up against Black Panther, which was unbelievable. Yeah, which yeah. is like the movie yeah. of the year. And, yeah. and but, but you held your own. And I'm curious, like, that mode, that kind comedy mode really seems to be one of your sweet spots and is comedy a direction you thought you would go when you were kind of in, in school or, or early in theater or? i still don't think i'm funny um i I, I, do, I don't know i think there's no direction it's more i'm very much like take an opportunity when it arises it's either you you, you take a swing at it or you miss and Luckily, I, I just had opportunities where they showed up and you, you take this chaos and you try to uh, arrange it in a way that makes sense and kind of have fun with it. I think the majority of this is have fun with it. It's not so serious. Um, do I take it serious? Yeah, that's the fun, like the freedom to play. But 
I don't know. I'm lost on this question. It's serious fun. It's seriously fun. Yeah. It's yeah. seriously fun. Is there a genre you haven't done that you'd like to do or do more of um, that you've had a taste of? I, I would love to go back to stage. Yeah. There is no high like that. There is no, nothing compares to it. I played in a band for a while and it was that same thing. You, you go out there, you prepare these songs, you prepare a play. And then once you get out there, you forget it all and you just kind of play. Yeah. And like, and then to go through that two and a half, three hours and then be done, be like, God, that was a marathon. Yeah. No cuts, no, no, no anything. Yeah. You're just there. And it's, it's, you breathe, you see all the flaws and you have to deal with them. And that's what I think is exciting about like with with film and television, a lot of times you're trying to uh, rearrange a performance or manipulate it. Um, With theater, you're just like, you got to live in it. Yeah. And as it, as it goes, you got to fix it and <laughs> make it better. Yeah. And one of the fun things about theater or one of the interesting things about theater is that I guess there are remakes of shows and movies, of course, mm-hmm. but like you can play iconic roles that you've always wanted to play. Is that, is that kind of where you think when you think about theater or do, would you prefer like the new things? Or? Oh, 100% new things. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's so much plethora of like old plays and revivals coming out, but also we do have not tapped into this generation's playwright. These are authors out there and we have to support that community. We have to, it's our duty as a culture to support new art. And what's the voice of the modern time? Yeah. We can't be afraid of it. Yes. I know like big business and money understands that this revival works. So let's make money on it. But yeah, shit, dude. Let's go for something new, something exciting. Be that Hamilton, you know? Yeah. Be yeah, that. Be yeah. that exciting new world. Yeah, and even something like, I, I kind of got dragged. I didn't want to go to A Doll's House Part 2. I was like, oh, like Ibsen Redux. I know, I know that. And that play was um, like so good, and it felt brand new, even though it was based on something. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it just felt exciting to Well, be, it was a new play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It like was, it was brand, I mean, it was, it and, and had a very contemporary take, and like, and to see something like that on Broadway. Mm. like I felt, That was at the rare. Golden Theater, too. That's where Vanya was. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, wow. It has a good track record, I guess. I read somewhere that Vanya is one of the most, if not the most produced play regionally in the country. Right I believe, well, you, uh, it's 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 perfect for any regional theater. You yeah. have six actors, and you literally have older actors there where you have the community coming in and just revitalizing it. I think it's what Christopher Durang did. Uh, made a great playground for people to play on. Yeah, absolutely. It's just fun. Yeah. Now, you're in another ensemble thing, The Oath. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with Ike Barinholtz's film. And Ike um, Barinholtz, Tiffany Haddish, John Cho, Meredith Hagner. I mean, that's it a good was, group. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Dude, it was so fun. Was it um, Was it like a kind of improvisatory kind of th- vibe? or like No. Was it? Yeah. Uh, uh, Ike, yes. Ike does operate that way a lot. And I, I'm always down to improv and just explore but i remember when i after i got the role ike and i sat down for two weeks and figured out our conflict and where our character stood and we were on the phone for hours night at night after night figuring out this dynamic and seeing like what story do we want to tell and how can we do it best so again i only hope to work with collaborative people where it's the 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 best idea should always win you know, shoot what needs deserves to be shot. Make the story that deserves to be told. And it was so enjoyable, like having a scotch and sitting up on the phone talking to Ike. He's in LA, I'm in New York, and just figuring the script out. So, yes, on the day, it changes a little bit naturally, but 
what we wanted to tell did not right so and it's a it's a comedy but it's it's dark and oh, it's, yeah. you have know you seen it? uh yeah i have and 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 it's it's you know political in 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 a pretty you know acute way yeah. um and i'm curious like in general do you find you know given regardless of what your personal politics are like we live in a very charged time and yeah. does that seep into the stuff that you seek out in terms of work or like how does how does that the kind of political atmosphere affect what you do yeah, it's charged 100%. Yeah. We don't live in a society where you can be quiet anymore. I do think the the soapbox of Twitter is a little out of control and it, it gives anyone a voice that doesn't do the research and so much false information is put out there. I think with work and projects now, you can use a specific vo- voice and a specific point of view to get a message across. So I think it is a powerful tool. Again, like art reflects life and life reflects art and you have to be in it now. Yeah. Uh, there's no way to avoid it. If you do, you, I think you you have to, uh, you have to, why? This is our world. We live in it. Yeah. Like we have to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We can't not stand up for something that we believe in. Yeah. Well, it's why the oath, the oath is interesting because it feels like one of the first movies that's like post trump you know like yeah. it very much takes place that comments on yeah it. yeah and exactly. i and i play very much a conservative character uh, a very extreme conservative character and i don't feel if you play him as a joke it's not worth it right you have to be all in play it seriously and get their point of view that's what we went for with that film we really went for a point of view of a side that uh was different from ours so how do you justify it and how do you actually give everyone a voice? Yeah, well I think you I think you found that that balance. I mean it, yeah. it, it works and it's while also being, you know, crazy and you know <laughs> all, all, all that. Always. And then I'm curious so tell me a story which is based on fairy tales, right? Uh yeah, so Kevin Williamson uh Dawson's Creek uh, Scream. I know you did last summer like he's yeah. yeah. He uh it's a like a revitalized version or a modern take on Red, Little Red Riding Hood, Hansel and Gretel, and um, Three Little Pigs, and but there's no fairy tale aspect of it. It's just those stories put in modern time, right? Where it's very dark, sexy, alluring. It's it's wild. It's Kevin Williamson. You know, he he likes that stuff. Which one are you in? I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I'm Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, you are. I'm Little. Red. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stretch. Again, I yeah. like to stretch. Um. Yeah, he, he, it's just a dark version of that world. And again, we have these old stories of where they're based from, and it's just a retelling of a modern version of it. And it's not fairy tale, though. It's all grounded right. in reality, just with the morals of those stories. Built. Had you done much like in the horror thriller kind of vein? I'm st- I just don't like scary movies. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I had to go see Suspiria, the new Luca Guadagnino movie recently, and yeah. I just watched it through my I, yeah, fingers. It was I don't miserable. like it. I get so nervous. Is it scary to film scary? scenes no yeah because like again you're you, you, you see someone in the you know in the woods all by themselves dark and they're like billy yeah. are you out there um but in reality there's 40 people standing around on their phone just like you know yeah that's, that's kind of comforting actually <laughs> yeah. that's what i'll think about next time i have to go see something frightening yeah. so you've done musical you've done comedy you're you're d- doing horror coming up or thriller no. uh is there anything Directing, directing. You wanted that? I'm, I'm put. A, I'm putting a film together right now. Oh, that's uh, exciting! Uh, hopefully, it'll come together uh, by the end of our first of next year. Okay, the first quarter of next year, and it's really exciting to step out of. Again, I think as an actor, you are a color in someone else's palette. 
you could be the best blue, but you're just, you're kind of blue. Right. You know, and as a producer director, you start getting to paint the picture and you put the pieces together and you, you put it on the pal or, or on the canvas and you create it. So I want to move to that that aspect when you've been filming stuff i mean obviously you're listening to what the director is telling mm-hmm. you for a scene or whatever are you also just observing them in general just to kind of 100 yeah you you naturally have to like yeah yeah you just again i have have over a decade of being in this industry and uh you just pick it up along the way and like now i can honestly say like you at least i'm very aware of people around me and how their experiences are going and i'm just collecting information of how, how their job is done, who's talking to who, what's the chain of command, and you just pick it up along the way if you yeah. listen. I think a lot, again, like, just listening makes such a difference in every facet. Just yeah. people. And I think, you know, I think that's something that's been really um, appealing about y- your work in the past few years is that, like, you fit into ensembles well, you know? And I think that that must be part of it, is that, like, if you're just, like, in step with everybody because you're all sort of connected in some way, like, that really shows on the screen. Yeah, yeah. You know? Listening. If, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Um, you know, and if you're directing and you um, run into any trouble, you can always just call your friend Spielberg and get <laughs> his advice, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. God. But that was, like, again, watching him and Tom Hanks work together, like... Again, Spielberg had his ideas, why not? But first thing we did was we rehearsed the scene. And if someone had an idea, he listened to it. And he was like, that's great. Let's do that. Wow. Where you're like, okay, the guy is so comfortable with who he is and what he does that he has that freedom to let go and just, you know, create and do something beautiful. And I admire that. You know, yeah. That, that, yeah. It's training and training and training over and over again to finally just do it you know and let it all go you're not doing the training you've done you're just living it and yeah exploring well i think that's what you're doing uh and uh you know so i would encourage everyone to see maniac if they haven't it's wild go see the oath watch uh, tell me a story um and then you know we'll see what you do next can't wait Uh, yeah Yeah. i can't wait either well billy thank you for being here thank you for your time i appreciate it that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep finding us on Apple Podcasts, leaving us reviews, telling your friends, all of those things. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, where there's also going to be a great piece on Drew Goddard by Joanna, um, so you can read much more about this filmmaker who we are all big fans of. Um, you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rye Laws. And Joanna. Joe this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best political platform you'll ever hear on this podcast goes to Katie Rich. Award season creates jobs. Maybe we should celebrate it for that. <laughs>